our Father in heaven, we ask that you would uh, work through your word by the power of your spirit. We pray that your word would today not go forth in word only, but in the Holy Spirit in such a way that our eyes would be lifted to behold Jesus and to adore Jesus and the glory of his person and the glory and sufficiency of his work. God, please do this good thing in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you open your Bibles, please now to Matthew 3. Matthew 3, verse 13. In this passage, Jesus begins his ministry on earth. And when he does, God himself bears witness from heaven. God was bearing witness about his son before this through the prophet John. We saw that in our last sermon in Matthew. Remember, John was proclaiming God's message about the coming of Christ and calling him the one who is coming after me. But starting right here in Matthew 3.13, Jesus was no longer called by John the one who is coming. From this point forward, he was called the one who has come. This is an epic-shifting moment. Jesus' public appearing. And on this great occasion, God continues to bear witness about his Son. But this moment was so important... And what God wanted to say about Jesus was so sacred and personal that God did not simply continue to speak through the mouth of his prophet John. Instead, he opened heaven and said it himself, directly, immediately, not through any messenger. God wanted this word of testimony about his son to be especially set apart because Jesus was about to begin his ministry on earth, and the Father wanted to announce it firsthand. And further, He wanted it to be known what He thought about what the Son was about to do. And the significance for us is great. When we see how Jesus' ministry began, and then we hear what the Father had to say on this occasion, together these things show us how we should understand and respond to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So first, we see the beginning of his mission. That's our first main point, the beginning of the mission. The way that Jesus began his ministry was surprising. The place where he began his ministry was not. It was just what we might have expected. He went to John at the Jordan River. That's fitting, remember, John is the prophet God raised up to prepare the way for Jesus. And so it makes good sense that this is where Jesus would make his public appearance and launch his earthly ministry. But what Jesus wanted to do when he got to John was very confusing at first. He, he didn't go to be preached about or to be bowed down to. If you look at verse 13 in your Bible. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now even John, the prophet, 
is bewildered by this. See that in verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So part of John's hesitation here is he feels a great personal unworthiness to do this for Christ. Remember, he said just a couple of verses earlier in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Uh, In those days, a disciple would serve his master, the, the rabbi or teacher that he followed, And he was expected to do basically whatever his teacher needed. But there was one exception to that. A disciple was not expected in that culture to do what was considered the lowliest and and most base tasks that a servant might have to perform, which, which basically involved tending to a person's feet, washing one's feet, or untying and carrying his sandals. That was work viewed beneath the dignity even of a disciple, fit for only the lowliest servants. And and so John is thinking the Christ who's coming is so great, he's so worthy. Not only am I unworthy to be his disciple, I'm not even worthy to, to serve him as the lowest slave, attending to his feet and sandals. And he's asking to be baptized by me. Like, uh, like other people who come and want to become my disciples. J- Jesus, no, do you come to me? I need to be baptized by you. Well, in, in what sense did he mean? I think in the sense he meant in verse 11. Consider this again. John said, the one coming after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He said, the Christ is coming with a better baptism. The Holy Spirit in fire, the purification in the saints that the Holy Spirit would bring. John is saying, Jesus, you don't need me to put you underwater. I need to receive the gift of the Spirit from you so I can be purified and sanctified and be a part of your kingdom and and the new creation. Now, there, there was another reason why John would have prevented Jesus from being baptized by him. And you'll recognize this if you remember what John was baptizing for. What did his baptism represent? People repenting from sin. Fleeing God's wrath, seeking God's kingdom. In verse 11, again, John explained what he's doing in his baptism in those terms. I baptize you with water for repentance. And so above that, verse 6 said, when people went to John, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And they were responding just rightly to his preaching, uh, which is heard in verse 2. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this also is why John is hesitant to administer his baptism to Jesus. Because... Because did Jesus need to come and confess and repent of sin? No. Well, well, then why would Jesus want to do this? Well, he answered in verse 15. Look at verse 15. But Jesus answered him. Let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us 
to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. These are the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, in the New Testament. Uh, He declares his intention, his mission to, to fulfill all righteousness. And his first word was actually a command, permit, permit this for now, let it be. And then the same Greek word is repeated at the end of this verse. John permitted it. He, he consented. John obeyed the words of Jesus exactly. So we see here, even though Jesus had come to be baptized by John and, and to take the lower place, still he's coming with authority. And his will is done. But, but look how he is using his great authority. With such humility, he insists that he be baptized right alongside a multitude of sinners who were there confessing their sins. And Jesus explained why this had to happen. It it must for, and that way it was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So, this is the way for us. He included John in this statement. This is the way for us to fulfill righteousness or or what is right. So John was called to prepare the way for the Messiah, and if he would be righteous with respect to that calling from God, this is what John had to do. Jesus came as the Messiah. If if Jesus was going to fulfill all that was right so far as his saving mission was concerned, this is what he had to do. Well, in one sense then Jesus When he goes into the Jordan, he's turning the baptism of John upside down. Because when he walks into the river, he's not going there confessing any sins, but to fulfill all righteousness. When John baptized others, it showed their need for repentance. When John baptized Jesus, it was showing the perfection of his obedience. Now, let's not forget where we've been when we come to this verse. We... We find a a word with a lot of uh, theological freight, heavy with meaning. The word fulfill is here. Fulfill has been a very important word in the gospel of Matthew so far, even before here in verse 15. Remember, repeatedly, Matthew 1 through 3 has told us Jesus did this or that to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. And the genealogy at the very beginning of Matthew, that indicated Jesus had come to fulfill the Lord's covenants and promises. And then Jesus will say in Matthew 5, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. The the big point of Matthew 1 through 5 is Jesus is fulfilling everything, all the things. And verse 13 adds another, verse 15. I must be baptized to, baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Meaning he must be obedient in every way that is required for his life to fully accomplish the salvation for all those he came to save. Enough righteousness to count as the righteousness for all of the people God would justify in every generation. What obedience was required of him to accomplish that? 
Well, generally speaking, he would need to obey in all things. As our representative head, he would need to live in complete and perfect obedience on our behalf, fulfilling all of God's righteous laws in whatever situation he was in, opposite of all of the ways his people had been unrighteous before him. His role as Savior especially required him to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And him getting baptized at the beginning of his ministry was fitting because it pointed forward to that ultimate act of obedience. This was the perfect way to begin his ministry because it pictured the end that he was aiming at from the start. The cross. Think. Jesus went into a river of repentance to identify with a bunch of other repenting sinners who were going into those same waters to identify with the sinners he was going to save. He went into the water where people were confessing their sin, repenting of sin, because he had come to take on those sins upon himself. And what happened next, when Jesus came up out of the water, it showed that his baptism carried this Symbolic significance. Look at verse 16 now. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, the Father's words here are based on what he had spoken long before through the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah, whom he would send. Isaiah 42, 1. Isaiah 42, 1, the Lord said, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, or with whom I am well pleased, I have put my spirit upon him. And in Matthew 3, that's what God did. He put His Spirit upon the one with whom He was well pleased. And He said so to to let us know Jesus was the one. Now, important in Isaiah, those words in Isaiah 42 begin a set of four prophetic passages that are called the servant songs. And the servant songs are about this Servant of the Lord who will come and accomplish salvation for his people. Isaiah 42.1, the basis of what God said at the baptism, that's the very beginning of the servant songs. And it is to show this man, the ministry that he's going to carry out on earth, he is going to be the servant of the Lord, who, upon whom the Lord would lay uh, the iniquities of all his people. And, and then actually his baptism showed that he was this servant because the very last verse of the last servant song in Isaiah is Isaiah 53, 12. And Isaiah 53, 12 says, The Lord said about the righteous one, my servant, He poured out his soul to death. 
He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. That's what Christ's baptism was a picture of. People were going into the water confessing their transgressions. God the Son went into those same waters to be numbered with the transgressors. Like Isaiah said would happen. So he could be pierced for their transgressions. That was his aim. It's like the, the picture... It's like the sins of God's people were washed away into those waters, symbolically, and, and Jesus went in to be like stained and dirtied by them, to, to bear them before God. He, he did this symbolically in the Jordan River, bearing the people's sins, but He did it actually three years later on a cross outside of Jerusalem. He identified with sinners in His baptism. He did it right at the beginning of His ministry. Because that's what his whole ministry was going to be about. The salvation of sinners. He didn't come to call the righteous. So he didn't go find some body of water where people who thought they were righteous were you know, being proud of how clean they were. He went to the river of repentance. Now this symbolic connection is more biblical than you may realize. Jesus later spoke of his suffering on the cross as a baptism. In Luke 12, 50, Luke 12, 50, Jesus looked ahead to the agony of the cross, and he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And then on another occasion in Mark 10, 38, after speaking of his upcoming death, He asked two disciples, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's talking about the cross. Now, why could the cross be called a baptism? Well, the word baptism means immersion, to plunge or dip, to to fully immerse. Even sometimes the Greek word meant to drown. So, So the word was used... Uh, figuratively, to speak sometimes of just being overwhelmed by something awful or catastrophic, like flooded with sorrow and suffering. And, and that described what was going to happen to Jesus on the cross. He was, going, he was going to be plunged into the waters of God's judgment against our sin, even to the death. See, this is amazing. John is calling people on the banks of this river to flee God's wrath that's coming. And Jesus comes to the same river to signal his intention that he, in courageous love, is going to walk right towards that wrath so that people can safely flee in his name. Now, now this, this, let, me, let me send the roots of this biblical connection down deeper for you. In, in the Old Testament, especially, being buried in water, that, that was a very important and established expression of God's judgment. Think of the flood in Noah's day. Think of the Red Sea crashing down upon Pharaoh and his army. And 1 Peter 3 explicitly connects Christian baptism with the waters of God's judgment in, in Noah's flood. Um, The authors of Psalm 88 make use of this same imagery. When when they cry out in Psalm 88, 7, Your wrath lies heavy upon me. 
You overwhelm me with all your waves. This is well-established imagery. This is why Jesus could call his suffering on the cross a baptism because he, he, when he hung on the cross, it's like he was going to be overwhelmed by all the waves of, of God's wrath like we deserve to experience for eternity. It was a baptism of sorts, of the worst kind. And that's why the news about it is the news of the best salvation imaginable, that he did that in our place, So if we are in Him, we never have to taste a single drop of the waters of God's judgment. And this is the salvation Jesus went to accomplish and and to give as a free gift to all who turn to Him in faith. And so He told John, "Let, let me be baptized. I accept my mission. I will be numbered with the transgressors. Right at the beginning, John, do not stand in the way of my going down this road to suffer for my people's sins. Other disciples who cared about him, right, tried to hinder him. Peter, Peter, do not hinder me from going down this road to suffer for my people's sins. He he said it a little more sharply to Peter, though, didn't he? Do not stand in the way of, of my obeying the Father in all righteousness for my people's sake. Don't stand in the way of me choosing to humble myself and take the lowest place. If you want to be saved by Jesus, you have to accept that your Lord has lived and died like the lowliest servant for your sake. If you say, no, no, Lord, you'll never serve me, you can't accept the gospel. The gospel is how he he humbled himself. For us. And if you want to follow Jesus, you have to put on this same lowliness of heart and be willing to humbly serve. Right? Just like Peter, do you remember in John 13? He would have prevent, prevented Jesus from washing his feet. And, and John also, like Peter, had to learn to receive the Lord's humble love, embrace Christ, taking the lower place to serve us, to save us. This brings him glory because in the eyes of God and the calculations of heaven, that is what is glorious. That's the beginning of the mission. It pictured the end of the mission. Now our second main point found in the second part of this passage is the delighted love of heaven. The delighted love of heaven. Okay, look again at verse 16 and 17. This time, I want you to try to focus all of your mental energies on imagining what this might have looked like and sounded like. This is incredible. Try try not to let it run in one ear and out the other. Think about this. The Spirit even inspired Matthew to write these verses in a vivid way. He uses words like immediately and behold, behold, to give you this impression that this is amazing what is happening. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, 
with whom I am well pleased. Incredible. God opened heaven and declared the love He has for His Son, the delight He has in His Son. That's incredible on its own, but it's even more so when you remember the context. What prompted this great profession of love and pleasure from God in heaven? It was prompted by the Son beginning His mission to go to the cross for us. When the Father saw His Son publicly and willingly numbered with transgressors, when the Father saw the Son identifying Himself with our sin as our servant and our substitute, it was then that the delighted love of the Father overflowed and spilled out of heaven with words proclaiming how pleased He was with what the Son was doing. He was so pleased that the Son would come to save us like this. Take that, take that to heart. That should be the sweetest sweetness to your soul. That God is not a reluctant Savior. The Father is abundantly pleased. He loves the mission of His Son to humble Himself to the point of death. To save us. It is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. As Jesus said in Luke 12, 32. Ephesians 5, 2 says, When Christ loved and gave Himself up for us, that was a fragrant offering to God. Jesus even said in John 10, 16 through 17, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. He delights to save. He delights in mercy. When the Father declared His love for His Son, and those words came down from heaven, at the same time, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven, like a dove, uh, to rest on the Son. Now, people have different ideas about why the Spirit came in the likeness of a dove on this occasion. Scripture doesn't say directly. I'm inclined to go with uh, the view of Jonathan Edwards. And he argued the Spirit descended like a dove. That was a, that was a sign that visibly communicated the same message that was coming down from heaven at the same time. Namely, the Father's love. So listen to Edwards explain this view. Test all things, hold to what is good. He said, The symbol of the Holy Ghost, a dove, is the emblem of love or a lover, and is so used in Scripture, and especially often so in Solomon's song, Song of Solomon, 1.15, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. That is, eyes of love. And again, in Song of Solomon 4, 1, the same words. In Song of Solomon 5, 12, his eyes are as the eyes of doves. And 5, 2, my love, my dove. And 2, 14, oh, my dove, let me see your face. And 6, 9, my dove, my perfect one. The dove is the emblem of love. And it was under this similitude 
that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, he said, descended from the Father on Christ at his baptism, signifying the infinite love of the Father to the Son. And so he, he reasoned what the eye saw on this occasion signified the same thing that, was, that the ear was hearing at the very same time. That this is my beloved Son. Well, I think even if, if you decide you know, you're going to punt that significance of the form of the dove, we, we certainly can say that the gift of the Spirit, whatever form it took, was an expression of the Father's love for the Son, infinite love, because of what the Father said when He gave the Spirit. Now think about this. The Holy Spirit is, is fully God. And so God giving His Spirit is an act of His full self Full self-giving is an act of perfect love. The Spirit proceeds from the Father as His full and complete and infinite love. And elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about the Holy Spirit's work, even in us, and the Spirit is, is connected with the love of God. Romans 5.5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 15.30 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the love of the Spirit, pray for me. Colossians 1.8, I heard of your love in the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's no accident that the Spirit's first fruit is love. So the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven, it, com it completely comports with the Father's words. This is my beloved Son. And it also fits perfectly with the Father's next words. In Him, my Son, I'm well pleased. Or in Him, my soul delights. In addition to the love of God, the Spirit in Scripture is associated with the joy of God. As in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you received the Word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Romans 14.17, the kingdom of God is a matter of Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, 52. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. It's no accident the Spirit's first fruits are love and joy. Uh, here's my favorite, Luke 10, 21. Is that... It says the Spirit, or it indicates the Spirit was the joy that Jesus had when He thought of and communed with the Father. Luke 10, 21 says, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. And then He prayed. So the Spirit also proceeds from the Father as His full and complete, infinite delight, His joy and good pleasure in His Son. Okay, do you know one, here's one big implication of all of this. That the chief evidence of the Spirit's work in a person's heart is love for the Son. And joy in the Son. That, that's just who the Spirit is, even within the Godhead. In, in Christ's baptism, it was a very fitting moment for God to reveal 
His triunity for the Godhead to be revealed in a higher and fuller way than it ever had been before on earth. Why? Because this was the time that God the Son was being revealed on earth publicly in person. So therefore revealed in a higher and fuller way than he ever had to be, ever was revealed before. And and you can't know who Jesus is truly without reference to the Trinity. All the great Trinitarian creeds that the, that the early church worked out, that, that was in answer to the question of who is Jesus? This was a very suitable time for God to display his triune nature, his son's public appearing. So God did. There was one man in church history uh, who said, if you, something like, if you want to see the doctrine of the Trinity, go stand on the banks of the Jordan. Meaning, just turn in your Bible to Matthew 3 and see what happened there when Jesus was baptized. Right? Be, behold your God here. God the Father in heaven, the Son on earth, the Spirit descending from heaven to earth, from Father to Son, three distinct persons working indivisibly as one great God who loves and delights to save. Now this revelation of God's triunity goes even further, though, even deeper than just revealing that God is three in one. We're also revealed here the, the real sweetness of that. Because here it is seen in, in just one scene what many other scriptures add up to say that God is a trinity of delighted love. Does that matter? If you know God, or if you want to know God, absolutely that matters. God is a trinity of delighted love. If that is what God is like, then all those psalms must be true that say, there is nothing on earth that I could desire that compares with Him. God is love. Matthew 3 shows He is a lover, the Father, a beloved, the Son, and their full and infinite love, the Spirit. Now I want you to consider, again, consider all that the Father could have said on this occasion. So many different true and wonderful things when the Son was publicly revealed. He could have said, Behold, this is my righteous Son, fulfilling all righteousness. He could have said, This is my true Son. This is my humble Son. This, this is my obedient Son. This is my only begotten son. This is my glorious son. All of these things would have been true. But he chose to say above all other things, this is my beloved son. And then the spirit descended as a dove. This is the son of my good pleasure. This is the one in whom my soul delights. Uh, You know, there's going to be one more time in Matthew that the Father will speak directly from heaven. Do you know what he says on that occasion? I'll tell you. And these words should sound familiar to you. He says, Matthew 17, 5, from a bright cloud, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him.
I mean, the Gospel of John, God repeatedly reveals this about his character, about his inner life. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 5.20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 10.17, Jesus said, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. John 15, 9 and 10, Jesus said, The Father has loved me, and I abide in his love. John 17, 24, Jesus said to the Father, You loved me before the foundation of the world. Are you maybe on to something about what God is really like? Maybe if God only speaks twice from heaven in a gospel, but he says the exact same thing both times, You should be on to something about what God is really like. This should shape the way you view God. Don't just guess what He's like. Don't just think He is what you hope He would be or or what you dread He might be. Look at how He's revealed Himself in His Word and especially in the fullness of His self-revelation in the person of His Son. God is a Father who loves and delights in His beloved Son in the love of His Spirit. That should shape the way you relate to God. Because it really is who God really is. In Matthew 3, we hear this heart of God for His Son. Now, don't forget the wider context. This is the heart of God for His also Son's work to save us and bring us back to Him. Wow. So this scene lays a foundation for what later scriptures teach explicitly. God saved us so that we could participate in this holy love that the Father has for the Son and in the Spirit. That's called eternal life. Like the hymn, the line of the hymn that we sang earlier, we are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. That's the great goal of the baptism that John said Jesus was going to bring. The baptism of the Spirit is to bring us into loving fellowship with God in Christ. See this. Jesus came to stand in our place, to be counted among the transgressors, so that we could stand in His place and be counted as beloved children of God. He died for us, so that we could enjoy the delighted love of the Father. And so we could enjoy the delight that the Father has for the Son by delighting in the Son also. And it's all given to us in the Spirit, whom Jesus pours out on us richly, Titus 3 said, when we trust Him. You know, the Scriptures, one of the things the Scripture calls the Holy Spirit, He is the Spirit of Adoption as sons. When Christ gives the Spirit to us, Romans says, then the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are sons of God. And so the Spirit causes us to see God as the Father who loves us and who saved us. And and so the Spirit compels us to call out to God, Abba, Father, just like Jesus did during His days on earth. 
Again, think of Romans 5.5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And God's love is not some love He gained when the world was created. God's love is the love He has for His Son. Poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This this is beautiful. The the way that, that the baptism of Jesus pictures the gospel is more beautiful than, than I realized when I began writing this sermon. And I had even you know, preached on these verses, just uh, some of them, fairly recently. That, that, that Jesus came to put himself in our place under God's wrath and judgment to bring us to the place he has enjoyed for all eternity, being the object of God's love and delight. Beloved children, the Holy Spirit comes to rest on us in Jesus as, as the gift of God's full and infinite and eternal self-giving love. And let this truth also overhaul the way you think about salvation, the way you think about Christianity, the death of Jesus and, and the work of the Holy Spirit. This salvation is not just for the purpose of like, ma- making drunks sober and making fornicators chaste, and making the angry self-controlled, and making you know, children show honor to their parents. It's not even just for the purpose of rescuing us from wrath and hell. I mean, our salvation does all of that. Praise God it does, but none of that's the ultimate goal. The death of Jesus, the gift of the Spirit, is for the purpose of, of baptizing us into the love and joy of God, into true fellowship with God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, to know Him, which is eternal life. The Spirit is is aiming to make you have a delighted love for God and for His Son as the Spirit helps you to trust and rely on the reality of the love of God, the security of of the love of God that's given in His Son. Because what is it? It's just an extension of the love that He has for His Son. And how real and secure is that? And you know what? That fellowship of love with God, that will make drunks sober and fornicators chaste and the angry self-controlled. And, and children to show more honor to their parents. And on and on and on and on and on. If we trust how God has loved us in Christ, that, that is our foundational reality. We will grow to love Him by the Spirit. And this will naturally cause us to love other people who are made in His image. And love fulfills the whole law. It leads to the keeping of every single one of God's righteous commands. That's how the Spirit works. This Christ-like and Christ-centered love. Deeper and deeper into us. Just as long as we're saved. Deeper still. Perfecting us in love. To use language from 1 John. And He will perfect us in this love. As soon as this short life is over. Now, in this light, this is the last idea I want to talk to you about. Um, in this light, I think we can see, understanding the specific ministry of the Spirit relating to 
the love of God helps us to understand, I think in a deeper way than we usually think about it, the Spirit's ministry in the life of Jesus. It is typically recognized that right here, that the Father anointed His Son with the Holy Spirit at the beginning of His ministry because the Spirit was going to empower and enable Jesus as a man to fulfill His ministry on earth and to fulfill all righteousness as a man. He would do it as a Spirit-filled, a Spirit-empowered man. Okay, that's true. But we have warrant from this passage to, and broader Scripture, I think, to, to be more specific. How, how would this, the Spirit do that? Equip Jesus to, to carry out His ministry as a perfect man. Well, let's start by remembering what did God say when He anointed His Son with His Holy Spirit. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What does other Scripture say about the work of the Spirit on human beings? God pours out His love on people through the Holy Spirit into their hearts. Through Christ's earthly life, the Spirit continually ministered to the Son's human heart and human mind, instilling a confident trust in the love of His Father and fueling great delight in the love of His Father and energizing a strong desire for the pleasure of His Father in all obedience. And the Spirit, the Spirit moved Jesus in His humanity to call out, Abba, Father. And it helped Jesus to continually pray and look to His Father in love. So, Jesus really could fulfill all righteousness as a man, always from the heart, filled with love for God. Because you know what? When God assesses whether or not an act is truly righteous, where does He look? In the heart. And what does He look for? Love for Him. The Spirit empowered Jesus to fulfill all righteousness as a man, which means, and it had to mean, that the Spirit would empower Jesus to love the Lord God, His Father, with His whole heart, His whole soul, His whole mind, all His might, in everything that Jesus did. Do you understand? Nothing else would be perfect righteousness. Only a righteousness of perfect spirit-wrought love. And that is the righteousness that pleased the Father when he saw it lived out perfectly in human flesh. And that is the righteousness that the Father credits to you. If you're a believer, he puts that righteousness on your account as a gift because Jesus lived and loved that way in our nature by the Spirit. And, and then to add grace upon grace, right? Jesus gives us the very same Spirit that equipped him to live that way, and the Spirit helps us to grow in living that way more and more. Resting in the love of God in Christ, living out of love for God in Christ. That's what it looks like to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not a Christian today, if you don't know and live for the love of God, please, Look at what happened here at the Jordan. 
Have this image burned in your mind. Jesus got in the water with sinners who were repenting. They weren't taking offerings of money into the water. They weren't taking a list of the good deeds they had done in the water. They were just repenting. Just confess your sin and turn from them in your heart and trust in the death and obedience of Jesus. And you will be rescued from God's judgment. God will pour his love in your heart through the Holy Spirit. And God will say about you, this is my beloved child. And for all of us in here, if, if you truly understand what the baptism of Jesus signifies, then that should cause you to share in the Father's assessment of the Son. That he, that he proclaimed right here, and it should cause you to share in the affection that the Father had for the Son as well. The more, the more you consider and trust in what he did in his baptism on the cross, the more from the heart you should be able to say, he is the one my soul loves. He is the one in whom my soul delights. Father, please, by the Holy Spirit, help us to be able to say that more. Complete our joy. Complete our love. We know that your Spirit is able. And so I pray uh, that you would work through him in us mightily, even, even the remaining ten minutes of this service. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.